All right, everybody, we are going to go ahead and jump in for tonight. Thank you all again for that tremendous meal. Uh, that, was, that was fantastic. And uh, we are going to jump into Revelation chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 2. We are making our way through the seven letters to the seven churches that Revelation was originally written to. We covered Ephesus the first time we were covering a letter, and then we covered last week's Smyrna and Pergamum together. And tonight we will cover what I believe is the longest of the letters, the letter to Thyatira. All right. Um, Scott, can you pray for us? I'm going to read the text, and then can you pray for us when I'm, after I'm done? Sure. Let's read here together. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not yet learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful, uh, as always, to gather here uh, with your people and uh, to have a meal together. Uh, just thank you for uh, Rachel and Wilson for all the time uh, and effort, sacrificial love they put into in prepping, and I'm sure others were involved in, in the preparation of all the food that was here tonight, so thank you for them, and uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to this church. Um, help us to be challenged uh, where we need to be challenged. Certainly, this church was growing, that their works were greater uh, now than they were at the beginning. They were making progress in sanctification. And so I pray that uh, we would be convicted by that, and I pray that we all would desire to grow uh, in godliness, no, no matter how long we've been a Christian. I pray that we would never cease wanting to grow uh, in sanctification and godliness, that we would never slow down. Uh, but Father, there, there was a serious issue with this church. They, they seemed to lack theological discernment, and uh, they tolerated evil in their midst, uh, which was not good. So I pray that we would have sharp theological minds, that we would care deeply about doctrine about your word and the purity uh, of the church, and I uh, just ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, even as you maybe read over this description of Thyatira, you may notice that it is almost sort of the photo negative of the letter to the church at Ephesus. I mean, they're literally almost opposites in some ways. So in Ephesus, what did you have? You have strong biblical discernment 
They're not buying into false teaching, false apostles. They've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and are false, and they've cast them out. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans. These guys have high discernment at Ephesus. What's the problem? Their love is going down, and their first works are also going down. So their, their, their love for Lord and neighbor is going down, and their works of service in some way are also decreasing. Here in Thyatira, we're going to see the opposite of this. This is a church whose latter works are greater than their first works. Their latter works exceed their first works, exact opposite of Ephesus, and yet they have a massive problem, which is they have lacked discernment in a critical way, and they're allowing poison to come pouring into the church, and there is no one to shut the door on the, on the toxic stuff that's coming in. So there, there's a lack of discernment, although there's a passion and a zeal uh, for others. Greg, can you give us some introductory remarks as we uh, make our way into Thyatira? Yeah, um, I got to get used to holding this, so y'all bear with me. Um, yeah, Thyatira, like you said, definitely the opposite of, uh, of Ephesus. And as we go through this, I think if, if anything would describe the evangelical church of today, it's Thyatira. Like if any, we see a, a parallel, um, you know, definitely there's, there's the love, there's um, the faith, the service, patient endurance, um, you know, hopefully you know, growing in our ability to do what God calls us to do, but there's the compromise that we see. Um, and so, I mean, and, and we get into this, we can talk about that more, but I, I just, I couldn't help but um, think about American evangelicalism in particular uh, when I read about Thyatira. Um, it just seems to, to um, meet that church group um, right where it's at. Um, and so let, let's start here, uh, kind of looking in at verse 18. Uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, and stop there. I think that's the only time in Revelation where the Son of God is used. Um, typically, you'll see Son of Man, other things. Um, but the words of the Son of God, and this matters because in Thyatira, there was a, a big devotion to uh, Apollos, uh, the son of Zeus, um, a big devotion to him. Uh, he, was a, he was a big deal in their worship there. And so I think this is very intentional um, on, on the part of God in giving these particular words of Christ when he says this. He is the true son of God, the true son of the only God. So when he says uh, the son of God, he's not just talking about God in general, but the God of the Bible, like the, the Hebrew Old Testament, New Testament, that God, Yahweh. Uh, there's only one. Um, there are no others. And when he says the son of him, that's who he's talking about. Uh, so he's the son of God. Obviously, we know he also is God. And we see he has eyes like a flame of fire uh, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Um, I want to make a comment on the burnished bronze, and then we can go to, um, to the eye part and what that does, what that means for the letter. But uh, bronze was a big metal industry in uh, Thyatira. Um, it, was, it was a big deal there. And so the bronze that they produced was more military grade. It was of a higher quality, stronger, tougher. And so I, I think in some ways this is an indirect, <clears throat> indirect um, kind of pushback against that. Like you think you've got good bronze. It's like, look, look at the one whose feet is like, like perfect bronze um, in that sense. Um, and so again, like there's so much in these letters that is like, that's cultural, but also that just applies when we start to, to compare what's in that city to what we see about Jesus and what we see being said to the churches. It's, it's amazing. Like, we don't have enough time to go through it all. 
I mean, I just think the eyes like a flame of fire. We talked about this before, but it's, 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 I think where you said it can be scary on the one hand, maybe, or convicting on the one hand that he sees everything. He knows the sin, the slightest sin, but it's encouraging on the other hand. He sees everything. I think we mentioned before, I just, I, I can say it again, but in the last month, I'm sure somebody here at this church woke up in the middle of the night and they began to pray about some issue, some person in this church. Well, Jesus sees it and knows it. He's going to reward it in heaven. I just think that's beautiful. It's wonderful. He, he pierces through. He knows everything about us. Like you cannot de deceive him. He knows you through and through better than we know ourselves. I think one application just from this would be, I think somebody just said we need to be self-honesty in prayer. Like we cannot hide anything from him. So we should just pour it out, totally honest, totally transparent before the Lord in prayer because he already knows anyway and he cares for us. So just, I just, I just love that. I, there's a guy named Charles Barkley who's a commentator on TNT. Uh, some of you may have seen him, but there's a famous video where he he falls asleep on live TV, and it just made me think of this. Well, Jesus never sleeps, like never slumbers. Charles Barkley just gets heavy eyes. Jesus has his eyes, flaming fire, pierces through you, knows everything about you, convicting and yet encouraging on that. I was thinking um, this verse. He, he has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees everything, like you say. He knows our works. And I was driven to Hebrews 4, 4, 12, and 13. You know, this, to me, it says the same thing, but in a different way. But for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In fact, he even says that. He knows your heart here. And no creature, this part I really like, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's the Son of God speaking to this church. And he knows their works. He's, he's executing judgment on this church. And this is, this is a pretty heavy uh, letter right here to this church in Thyatira. Look with us here at uh, the next verse, verse 19. As Jesus says essentially to every church, some version of this, I know your works. So of course he does. He's got eyes like a flame of fire. He knows exactly everything that's going on. I know your works. And he lists four different examples of works. And as we said before, when Jesus is going to critique this church, he starts with genuine encouragement. Now, there are two churches where there's nothing good he has to say about them. It's only going to be criticism. And there's a place for that. If a church is in such a terrible place, Jesus only gives rebuke. And that will come later, later especially with Laodicea at the end, the, uh, the, the lukewarm water. But here he gives four encouragements and then even a fifth if you add on there. So let's look at them. Verse 19, I know your works. Number one, your love. Number two, your faith. Number three, your service. And number four, your patient endurance. And that number five, your latter works exceed the first. That word for service there, the idea of kind of like a deacon, right? These are acts of physical, meeting people's needs physically for other people. This church was the kind of church where if you need something done for you, this church is going to spring into action. These are quick to serve, quick to be deacons, quick to, quick, quick, quick to meet physical needs. If there's something going on, if someone's in trouble, they are quick to reach out and serve them. And this is not uh, some sort of trick compliment where he's saying it just to set them up for a criticism. He is being sincere. This is a real thing the church is good at. If there are physical needs that need to be met, apparently, based on this term, they are quick to meet them. Other thoughts on what we see positively about the church? Well, one thing, I like the fact that uh, these letters all begin with the positive. Uh, that very much reminds me of Paul and his epistles. You know, he always uh, addressed his churches positively, except for Galatia. 
but I think to, as a word of encouragement, and, and Jesus is encouraging this church for love, faith, service, and perseverance, but there's a, there's a big problem. He's about to address it now. Well, I think in, in verse 19, when he says, like, your love and your faith, like, the, he's not um, being dishonest here. I mean, it's like he really sees evidence of love. Like, and I, and I think we see that love for God, love for others, like you said, expressed in their service to one another, and also their faith. I mean, they're, they're tr- they, they believe what God says in his word. They're trusting in Jesus. There's no, there's no denying that, they, that their faith is focused on Jesus in that way. Um, and through whatever kind of uh, suffering they've been going through, it says patient endurance, um, which is kind of ironic, though, when you look at what he's rebuking them for, the fact that he would say you have patient endurance. Um, I wonder if he's talking to the ones that he mentions in verse 24, the rest of you. You know, some are really displaying patient endurance. Others are not because they're capitulating and compromising. Um, but it's still true. There are those in this church who are patiently enduring evil. They're patiently enduring persecution. And I love, I love that last part. Your latter works at see the first. Like they've grown. Like again, opposite of Ephesus, which Jesus in Ephesus is just telling them to, to get back to what they did at the beginning. Like they, they've dropped even from that. He's like, get back to where you started. Here he's saying, what you're doing now is, is beyond what you started doing. And I mean, that, that's, I think, where we want to be as a church, isn't it? Like we want to grow in obedience to God. We want to grow in serving others. We want to grow in evangelism. We want to grow in discipleship. We want to grow in everything that God calls us to grow in. And so, I mean, that, that's a commendation that we would want Christ to say about North Avenue, and I, I think he would. Um, but we want what we're doing now to exceed what we used to do. I mean, I, th- I just think that's a good place to be spiritually and in terms of our walk with the Lord. But again, I, I do think it ironic that he says patient endurance. And then the, the one thing he, um, what we're about to see is a, is a lack of patient endurance. Um, so I don't know. I, I just think that's an interesting contrast. Mark, also, I'm, I'm reminded of you. You're always saying uh, direction, not perfection. And, and seeing the, the, your deeds of later greater than at first. And, it, and we couldn't ask any more uh, from a church than that, that they're can, growing, in other right. words. Yeah, I just want to read verse 19 one more time and just piggyback on what they've already said. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. One commentator just said, what particularly stands out in Thyatira is that the church was continuing to grow spiritually and in good works. Part of what makes Christianity so exciting is that we are called to continually grow in terms of our knowledge of God's grace, our personal holiness, our love for others, and our good works. And he kept, he said, each of us should pray that our latter works will exceed the first, another guy just said this, he said, a sign that we are growing that we are, is that we are expending ourselves for others. And he asked this question, are we giving our time to strengthen others in the things of God? And I thought of, uh, I don't want to embarrass Fred or my dad, but I thought, thought of both of them now. I mean, both of them, I'm not going to say their ages, but both of them are up there in age. Uh, and uh, both have been Christians for a long time. This is going to turn into a compliment soon. It will turn into a compliment soon. I'm doing the opposite of what Jesus does in this passage. But uh, they've been a Christian for a long time. And they are not slowing down at all. They, they have a passion for the Word of God. I mean, Fred, I'll start with, start with Fred. I mean, what I just read, uh, are we giving our time to strengthen others in the things of God? I mean, this man gives himself 
uh, to others to strengthen them in the things of God. And he meets with so many people. I mean, Jerry Edgar goes sit down at an elders meeting and just give us the list of people Fred is meeting with. It's just, it just the first time I, I about fell out of my chair. The first time it's just guy after guy after guy. This guy is meeting with to strengthen them in the things of God. Well, he's not slowing down at all. No, he's, he's retired in that sense, but he's not retired in the sense he's giving himself to so many people in this church. But then he's studying the Bible. I mean, this, this book has all got highlighter. He's got marking it all around. He's studying. His Bible's all torn up. I mean, this is what I've told people before. I want to be like Papa Fred when I grow up. I want to be like this man at the end. Like, just keep on striving, running, running after the Lord. Now, my dad, my dad's been a Christian for a long time. He's, he's taught uh, the Bible for like 40 years or something like that. And he, he basically was paid to study the Bible 40 hours a week at Faith Press for 28 years. He taught through basically 40 books of the Bible. He didn't finish Proverbs. 40 books of the Bible. 40 out of 66 books of the Bible he taught through. So he knows the Bible really well. When he, when he first, I'll rewind, when he first became a Christian, no background in Christianity. He's 19 and converted. He has his New Testament. He, he read it seven times in two weeks. I mean, seven times, yeah, seven times in two weeks, cover to cover. He just said, I couldn't get enough of it. And I, what I've said before is still, you know, 50 plus years later, he still can't get enough of the Bible. And, and I just remember one story. We're on vacation. I was in the front seat. My dad was very quiet at the beginning. I just said, I'm going to start asking my dad questions about the Bible. And as soon as I started asking him questions about the Bible, his eyes just light up. His hands are going crazy because he still has this passion for the Bible. So I just say, we have guys in our church that are passionate and growing, and we should just pray regularly, Lord, make me like a Papa Fred. Make me like a Bob McGandrew. No matter how long you give me, I want to keep growing and striving uh, till the end. Yeah, what, what does it say in Hebrews? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's not talking about somebody who's been leading you for the last 30 seconds or the last six months. He's saying, consider someone who's been leading for a long time, over a lifetime of faithfulness. Let me read it again. This is Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But there's something about, there's something unbelievably admirable, admirable about people who finish well, who, who, who are enduring to the end in faithfulness. And as, the, as Revelation tells over and over again, it's a call for the perseverance of the saints. It's a call for the endurance of the saints. We're on a marathon. This is not a sprint. Uh, the Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. Uh, that would be so easy, right? This is a cross-country marathon. This, this thing just goes on and on and on. It's decade after decade after decade after decade. And, and, and um, you know, my, when I, was, I'm, I wasn't planning to tell another dad's story, but when I was graduating high school, uh, there was a time where Parents could say a charge to their, to their graduating child for like two minutes at the, right before graduation. So my dad got up to give a two-minute charge to me. exactly at, two minutes. It was exactly on the dot, two minutes. And um, if I would have done it, it would be like 15 or something. But, so my, but my dad does a two-minute thing. And uh, basically his thing was this. He's, he's, you know, I'd just become a Christian very recently. I was a two-year-old Christian at the time. I was 18. And I've been a Christian for two years. And my dad basically said, you know, I mean, you started out with a passion for the Lord. And he said, that's great. That's wonderful. But a lot of people burn, burn up their passion in a very short period of time, and there's nothing left for the long haul. And my dad's charge to me was basically be a long haul Christian. Be, be, be someone who's here for the marathon, not the sprint. And uh, so often, uh, the sprint Christians can be people who show up and want everything to change overnight. They, they've got this picture of how everything needs to be utopia right now. Let's do it. We're going to change the world. And they go crazy for six months or even three years. And then they completely burn out of their ambition. They completely, they become disillusioned by the reality of life. Things are never as easy as they seem. Things are always harder than they, you think they're going to be. And when things don't turn out as utopian as you thought they were going to be, and the kingdom doesn't come in its fullness right now, well, then what's the point of this? 
And then before long, they throw in the towel and they're, they're investing in things that are far less of eternal, not of eternal significance anymore. So uh, th- this church, the one good thing we can say about them is that they were, they were getting stronger in some regards as time went on. But we're about to see some challenges. Any last thoughts on the positives here? Just one, one, more, one yeah. more thing. Tom Schreiner just said we can be growing in some areas of our lives and lacking in other areas of our lives. I think this is just a great point there. Like you could be doing well in certain areas, but I think Dad is, again, to quote Dad, but Dad has said before, like pick books that you're like struggling with to read these books that specific issues that you're dealing with. Maybe you're lacking in evangelism. Well, read specific books on evangelism to try to grow in those specific areas where you know you're, you're weak in. That's good. So now we're going to get into the criticism, and it's not a small criticism. Uh, verses 20 through 23 really are the primary criticism here. Let's, let's I'll read them all, and I'm sure we'll reread them as we go. So verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice two things, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but, it, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I've heard it said, people have made this point, that a church without discernment or church discipline, without those things, is like a body without an immune system. So you could be an otherwise completely healthy person, but if you have no immune system, it's only a matter of time before you become deathly sick, right? Because if you don't have an immune system, it's not just that some killer virus out there is going to get you, it's that what can get you? Anything can kill you if you have no immune system. This church was an otherwise very healthy church, it looked like, and there was a lot of things going for this church. It was growing. Its latter works exceeded its first. It's growing in love. It's growing in faith. It's growing in service and patient endurance, and their latter works are better than their first. This is great, but their discernment seems to be down to almost zero. And there's a woman in the church who calls herself a prophetess, and she's not really, of course, named Jezebel. She's titled this because she's like Jezebel in the Old Testament. And this church, as zealous as they are for doing what is good, and as passionate as they are for works of service and helping people out in the, in, 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 you know, around them, as, as zealous as this church is, they can't see a satanic agent right under their nose. And this woman who is teaching the deep things of Satan, Jesus calls them, Of course, she didn't call them that, I'm sure. She called them probably the deep things of God, but Jesus calls them what they are, the deep things of Satan. She claims to be getting words from God. She's a prophetess, right? So she's claiming to get words straight from heaven. And as she is speaking supposedly words straight from God, what she calls the deep things of God probably, Jesus says they're actually coming from the other place. They're coming from Satan. And she is spewing this toxic stuff into the church and there's no immune system. There's nothing to stand up and say, stop. This has got to be stopped. This must be repented of. If our church allows this, and we allow this to infect and affect our church, it's going to end up affecting many of us, which apparently had already had many of the people. And it's going to start dragging us down, and eventually we're going to be in dire trouble because this teaching is toxic and it it, it is extremely uh, deadly. Let, Let me say another word here real quick about Jezebel. If you look on the screen from back in 1 Kings chapter 16, let me remind you who Jezebel was. We kind of have a vague notion, but let me just remind you. Ahab was the worst king in the history of Israel, and that is saying something. <laughs> so 1 Kings 16, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Again, that is an accomplishment of evil right there. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger uh, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then look a little later. When they see uh, Elijah, I'm going to skip ahead here. It says, now therefore gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Do you see what Jezebel's doing? She's brought idolatry into the heart of, the, of, of, of Israel. She's married to the king. She's got him to worship. Baal and Asherah poles are, are being erected. And now she is allowing to eat at her table. She's taking care of who? 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And one last verse here, 1 Kings 21. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, what? Incited. She provoked him. She encouraged him. She pointed him in the direction of idolatry. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So thoughts on this background here? Well, I'll, I'll make a comment go back to what you started with. Uh, the importance of a church being diligent uh, to be discerning and to practice discipline. Um, because we see what, what Ahab did because of Jezebel's influence and the negative effect that it had on the people of God in the Old Testament. Um, you know, when we talk about, about church discipline, like it's, it's never a, a fun subject. It's never a subject that we like get giddy excited about. It's one of those sad necessities um, that at times a church has to exercise when people engage in blatant, flagrant public sin and they won't repent. Um, I don't remember who said this. If you remember who it was, please, please tell me. But it was a, an older Baptist theologian of, in the 1800s said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. Um, and that, that's not an overly dramatic statement. Because if a church will not engage in church discipline, then Jesus is no longer Lord of that church. Um, holiness is no longer the aim of that church. Purity before God um, in our doctrine, in our practice, is no longer what's most important. Something else has replaced Christ Christ, when a church will not engage in discipline. And that matters because it seems like that there was at least an attempt at some point in the church in Thyatira to discipline this woman. There was some attempt at some point where some Jesus, kind of warning, some kind of warning was given because Jesus says, verse 21, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Likely some of the elders, um, something in the, someone in the church told her, look, this is wrong, you need to stop it. But when she did not, they didn't continue to warn her. They just backed off, let her do her thing. Well, I guess they thought it was like Eli and his two sons. Well, I warned them, told them it was wrong, but he just kept letting them do what they were doing. Um, and so they, they, they forsook discipline. They forsook discernment and... Well, you, you've probably heard this said, it's a lot easier to keep an enemy out than to get him out. Like if someone, if an enemy is trying to break in to your castle, to your, to your land, it's much easier to keep him out because once he's in, it's 10 times harder to get him out because he starts to set roots down and starts to have an influence in ways that he can't have if he's still on the outside. And so they let Jezebel have her way and that's why they hear 
the words of Jesus, I have this against you, and some of the strong things that he says, I'm going to throw her on a sickbed, I'm going to throw those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, I'm going to strike her children dead, um, and I'm going to give each to each according to their works. Like These are strong words, but they're necessary because this church had said, we're going to give her space to do what she's, what she's about. And that is the one thing a church can never do is give space to false teaching and false doctrine. The moment you do and you say, we're not going to make a big deal about this, you're allowing someone or someone's to sow seeds that will lead people to do the very thing Jesus is rebuking here. There's a, there's a couple other things. The, the church council that met uh, in Jerusalem addressed uh, the issues of um, sexual immorality and meat sacrifice to idols. So, you know, where is the application there to the church? And, the, and she announces she Jezebel, and that's not a real name. Uh, I, I wouldn't think. I, I guess there's two names you don't name your kids, Jezebel and Judas. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we don't know what her name was, but she obviously exercised some sort of leadership capacity in the church. She called herself a prophetess. And, and I guess... There's, like you say, there's some, some gave her an opportunity to repent. I don't know whether that's the elders of the church, but, uh, uh, you know, there's sin and then there's evil. I, I, I think they're both the same, but I think we're like her namesake, uh, Ahab's wife. It was willful. It was willful. All through her life, she was a uh, daughter of... Um, name, Sidonian uh, uh, king, and she led Israel into adultery. She led Israel into the Asherah and the worship of Baal throughout her whole life. She never, and then poor Elijah, she picked on Elijah unmercifully. So, and, and, and this person, whoever she is, seems to be similarly motivated, um, in fact, so much so that God says, you know, I gave her time to repent. She doesn't repent. I'm going to cast her on a bed of sickness and her, uh, and, and into tribulation that her, those that follow her, unless they repent. So that's evil. And, and we can't, we can't tolerate evil in our church. We can't tolerate sin. But I mean, again, there's a form of, we all sin. I think we would agree with that. But there, I think evil is almost a different category sometimes. Yeah, there's, there's a difference between making a, a genuine sinful mistake and getting called on it and repenting versus what this lady was doing, which was unrepentantly promulgating something that was false. And let me just try to give a little bit of a picture here of what's going on. So um, here's what, what most everybody agrees what's going on with, with, uh, with Thyatira, and I'll put it back on the screen here so you can see. Uh, it was basically with its location, uh, it was a great place for trade. So economy was a big deal here in, in the city of Thyatira, and it was a major trading place. Remember Lydia, who was converted in Acts 16? She was a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. And so there, there was a lot of trading of, of those kinds of things. And, and from what we can tell from archaeology and things and from writings, there were a lot of trading trade guilds. Um, essentially kind of like unions, right? You have all these labor unions, these, these guilds where people would, would work together, and there were guilds for everything. You had metalworking guilds, and you had different kinds of clothworking guilds, and all these different things. And in, if you were going to trade and make money and like actually survive in the city of Thyatira, you basically had to be part of one of these trade guilds. 
And these provided massive social security because you, you had a network of relationships. It also provided a lot of economic freedom where you could trade and make profit. And here's the thing. Each one of these guilds had its own patron god or goddess that sponsored the guild. So let's say, this is kind of Kevin DeYoung's sort of made-up version of what you might experience if you're in a trading guild. Let's say that you're in a trading guild with some kind of fabric sales, and you, you get together to sell your fabrics, and you, you would have these regular feasts and these, these get-togethers, and, the, and you'd get together to eat. So you have this great feast prepared, and the leader of your guild stands up and says, okay, before we uh, do this, we're going to offer a sacrifice to Zeus, his statues in the corner of the room, because uh, he's the patron god of this great feast, and we're so thankful that Zeus has provided this feast for us. So everyone, let's, let's say a prayer to Zeus, let's offer sacrifice to Zeus, and then we're going to eat the meat that we just sacrificed to Zeus, and it's going to be a great party. Praise Zeus for this, okay? And so suddenly you're a Christian and you're sitting in the room. What do you do? perfectly clear. If you participate, if you sit in a pagan temple arena and you eat the meat fresh off the grill that was just sacrificed to an idol, you are beginning to participate in an actual worship of, of, of idolatry. And that's evil. That's wicked. And oftentimes, guess what? Idolatry and sexual morality go together over and over and over again. In these contexts, it was not uncommon for people to get drunk and for people to participate in sexual morality. So why are those two sins linked? Because they were linked in practice and reality in these particular situations. So what in the world do you do? Well, uh, you've got to find a way to, to get out of there. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 on the screen here. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, partake, we all partake of one bread. Now, now listen to Paul's argument. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? You see where he's going with this argument? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to who? Demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then he concludes, so whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? You can't sit there in the pagan worship service when the meat is being offered to Zeus or whoever and people are passing it around with the cup that's been offered to Zeus of the wine and the bread that's been, and the food that's been offered to Zeus. You can't sit there and eat it and say, well, in my mind, this is actually honoring God, the God of Israel, uh, the true God, the God of Jesus, but I, I'm just going to sit here at the table and I'm not going to tell anyone I'm, I'm not really worshiping Zeus in my heart. And I, blah, blah. No, if you're at that table and you're participating in that pagan moment, you are participating and drinking from the cup of demons. You're eating from the meat of demons. You are participating in what is demonic because it's idolatrous. And Paul says, get out of there. Don't, don't do that. And so that's, now do you get this? The pressure on the Christians is overwhelming because if they say, hey, I can't not in good conscience eat this food, you know what happens? You're kicked out of the guild, which means your ability to trade in Thyatira is basically shot. Your economic stability is shot. You've just lost your job and you're gonna have good luck trying to make money outside of the guild because everyone who's making money is in the guild, right? And number two, you're now socially suspected by everyone you knew. All your friends think you are the problem. Today, you know, they'll call us hateful and whatever. But back then they would say, What's, they, they called Christians atheists because they didn't worship a, a, an idol. They say, you don't even believe in the gods. We believe in all these gods. You don't believe in any of them. You guys are a bunch of atheists. They're like, That's, no, we believe in the one true God. So, so do you see here, social ostracism was one price. Economic cost would have been severe. And so despite all that, this woman shows up and says, hey, I got a word from God. This Jezebel, I got a prophecy from God. 
There's a way that we can participate in, the, in, those, in those guild feasts, and it won't be a sin. And let me say one more thing. I want to hand it over to these other guys. One more thing. They may have misused Paul's very argument earlier in 1 Corinthians right here. They may have misused this very text. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. This could have been the argument of the Jezebel lady in part. Therefore, as to eat, eating of food offered to idols, we know that, here's her deep argument, an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For all there, there, there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is, defi is defiled. And do you see what the argument may have been? Zeus isn't real. So if I partake of this meat that's been offered to Zeus, it's nothing. There is no idol. There is no Zeus. So we can just eat. It's no big deal. See, this is the deep teaching of God. And Jesus goes, that's the deep teaching of Satan. Because although Zeus is not real, demons are real. And behind the idolatry is the demonic. And you really are participating with the demons in these feasts. There's a hermeneutical issue in this. Because I, I agree. I think that's like, very likely what Jezebel was doing. We don't want to go beyond Scripture. Um, and we want to be careful with our quote-unquote logic, that our logic doesn't take us places the Scripture um, doesn't. Or that I, we need to be careful that our logic not take us places that Scripture clearly doesn't take us. We don't want to go somewhere based on logic that Scripture doesn't go. And that's exactly <laughs> what was happening here. They would take one part of Scripture, uh, of possibly what, what Paul taught, and say, see, this is okay. When in the very same book, very same letter, Paul clearly teaches contrary to the conclusion they were saying they could reach. So we always want to test everything that someone says by Scripture. Yeah, it might look logical from where you're at, but if there's other Scripture that clearly says otherwise, it's not from God. Like, it's just not. And we need to, to be bold enough to say, Look, your, your conclusion sounds good, but I've got some verses here that clearly don't back it up. Um, and so if anything pushes us to know the fullness of Scripture and not just little bite-sized chunks here and there, i got a verse here and a verse there, and I never read it in context. If anything pushes us to know the Bible well, it's stuff like this, because if we read our Bibles well, we are, in a sense, building our immune system so that we can't be led astray by something like this. It's just, it's going to be so much harder to do, to be duped when someone says, hey, look, God showed me this. God told me this. Um, well, this verse says you're wrong. Um, I mean, that, that's literally what we have to do. Um, somebody else. I had another thought, but it went away. I mean, I could just jump in real, real quick. One thing that struck me, let me just read verse 20 again. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, just what they're saying. I mean, this is absolute evil in their midst, that she's in, in, in their midst. But what struck me is at the beginning of verse 21, that we could rush past. I mean, there's a devastating judgment to come, but verse, beginning of verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I mean, that has just struck me this week. Different people talked about this. One guy said, still, even with Jezebel, God is full of mercy and has given her time to repent of her immorality, probably both spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. Another guy said, I gave her time to repent. Jesus doesn't rush to judgment. He gives time to repent. Oh, what patience and kindness how amazing that Jesus still holds out the prospect of mercy. I mean, just so often we're stunned by the wrong things in the Bible. We should be stunned right here. This is absolute evil in the midst. And yet I gave her time 
to repent. It made me think of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just, I mean, I'm jumping off this text, way off this text, but it just reminded me of my own life. I'm thankful God is patient. Like for me and my rebellion and my sin, God was patient towards me and God's kindness and patience should have should, led me to repentance. And that's how it should be. And I mean, so we should be struck. I just struck, it just moved me this week, just thinking about the tender mercy of God with this absolute evil. And, and yet he gives her time to repent. I just moved by that. And I yet she rejects that. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. She rejects that repentance. Um, I gave her an opportunity to repent, and she does not want to repent. That's rebellious. I mean, that's uh, in a church discipline situation. That's that's just unconscionable. I'll make a comment on that, and then get. I remembered the other thing I wanted to say. I heard Mark Dever say one time: the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that uh, both are sinners, uh, but a Christian is a repenting sinner. Repentance is one of the the hallmarks of of a true follower of Jesus. Like. Yes, we may sin, but when we do, there's conviction by the Spirit, rebuked by a loving brother or sister, and by God's grace, we repent. Um, it's not something we stay in or stay comfortable in. Non-Christians do not have that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention here is we mentioned this, I think, last week. Like, if the devil can't get the church through outward pressure, he'll get it through inward uh, seduction. And Jesus uses that word in verse 20. She, Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants to practice things. And the, the sad part is, uh, if, if before Jezebel kind of came in, if you had said to, to the people in Thyatira, hey, look, you know, it's okay for you to, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to participate, they would have said, there's no way. They probably would have said, no, that's wrong. We can't do that. But someone comes in and they, they make it palatable. They make it, they, they say it in a way that doesn't sound as offensive, doesn't sound as, as you know, confrontational or as harsh. And all of a sudden we, we get more open to it. And the biggest example of this in our day, uh, at least to me, and there, there's, there's other things we could mention when I'm, I mentioned I see the evangelical church in America here, is the whole issue of social justice um, and the Marxist roots of that. And I mean, we all know that, you know, Marxism is inherently anti-Christian. Like from the foundation to the very core of it, it is opposed to the gospel. It is opposed to God. It is opposed to Christ. It is opposed to everything the Bible teaches. There might be some crossover in terms of terminology, you know, um, you know, recognizing mistreatment of the poor is a bad thing. But when the Bible speaks of that, it's got something entirely different in mind than like when someone from a Marxist foundation does. And, you know, on its, on its surface, you know, Christians would say, oh, yeah, we got we to gotta resist Marxism. We got to resist anything like that. Um, but then you, you bring the social justice stuff in and all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, um, you know, that's, that's, we, we start embracing things in the church that, you know, 10 years ago we would have clearly rejected. Um, and, and Christians, like, we, we have a soft spot because especially the history of racism in this country, it's almost like when it comes to, to race and, and justice issues because of a, a, a bad representation of Jesus in the past, it's like, well, we can't use discernment now in the present because we don't want to be called racist. We don't want to be called in, you know, all these bad names. And so the church of our day has let things in, another Jezebel, if you will, um, and we tolerate her. I'm not saying North Avenue does, but the, the evangelical church, you know, all the people that, that's the podcast, the, all that kind of stuff, they, they have given social justice a free reign, and it comes from a worldview that is antithetical to the gospel. 
And it is still wrecking havoc. People, the, the church is kind of acting like, oh, that's, that's, you know, yesterday's news. The problem is it was let in and down the road, it's going to reap a bitter harvest. And if one church is more one ethnic makeup than another, and that church isn't intentionally excluding someone, you can't say they're in sin. But the mindset that has infected the church is like, no, you're, you're actually, you, you're not being a faithful church if your church doesn't exactly match the, the ethnic demographics of the community that you're in. And that, that's subtle and it sounds wise, but it is unbiblical because what if, what if God works differently than that? Are we going to question the blessing and move of the spirit of God because it doesn't match what Marxist rooted social categories say it should be? How dare we? But that's how it works. It gets in and it seduces us away because it sounds so good and it sounds so right. But then we start to say, does the Bible give us those categories? And if the Bible doesn't tell us to think that way and categorize things that way, then we're going to be in a whole heap of trouble if we do, no matter how holy and righteous and pious it sounds. So yeah, we, we have to be, go ahead. No, just on that point, I think that one of the issues is, are we defining our terms as the Bible does, and are we framing the categories the way the Bible does? If we adopt the world's definitions of terms and the world's way of approaching and framing issues, we're already set up to fail. There's no way to succeed if we have the world's dictionary and the world's set up because it's, it's going to be framed for their own way of doing things. So we, we've got to make sure we're going back to the basics and saying, what do we mean by justice or whatever the word might be and defining it by the Bible, which is why we did like a 40-something week series last year on both CRT and on LGBT issues because that's, those are two areas where I think the, that Jezebel-type stuff is coming into the church, where there's a lack of discernment on those things because words like love and tolerance are being used positively. And interestingly, back here in verse 20 here, it says, what's the one thing that Jesus has against the church? They're tolerant. That's the only criticism he has of this church is they're tolerant, which is the only compliment people have today for churches. So the, the thing that our culture says is the best thing you can be, which is just accepting people for whatever they believe and whatever they are and whatever they say, that's the one thing the world says is an ultimate virtue today. That's the one thing Jesus says is the thing you cannot do, is just tolerate whatever is being said or whatever is being taught. So anyone, just say this as clearly as I can, anyone who's trying to sell you a Jesus who is always tolerant of everything is not teaching the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus is not tolerant. In fact, let's read it one more time, verse 20. But I have this against you that you're tolerant, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. So it is tolerance of what is evil and tolerance of what is sinful. That's the very thing that Jesus is calling them on. The immune system is meant to kick in and to deal with that. It, again, if immune systems welcomed anything, if they tolerated any disease, we would be in a world of trouble. I'll just read this, this from Tom Schreiner. I thought it was really good. He just said, we learned from this letter that love can easily turn into a compromising tolerance, which is ultimately unloving. Rather than taking a stand for the truth, the church at Thyatira was permitting a false prophetess and her disciples to live in a way clearly contrary to the will of God. How easy it is for us to trim back what the Lord says about sexual morality and to think we are loving, generous, and kind. In doing so, genuine love always abides in the truth. There's both tenderness and toughness. Grace and truth is very well said there. But just what Greg is saying about building up our spiritual immune system, I would just say I'm so thankful for a guy like Jerry Ediger. He's not here, so I can talk about him. Jerry Ediger, his spiritual immune system is so incredibly high because his, he, if, like Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, you prick him anywhere, he's going to bleed bibline. And that is, that is Jerry Ediger. I mean, he is, the Bible is so, he's so saturated with the Bible that I can go to Jerry Ediger with questions. If, if I'm trying to, wrestling with something, is this biblical or not? I can ask Jerry. And Jerry's mind is so saturated with the Bible, he's going to help me 
think clearly and think biblically. And I've just been talking to him so many times in conversation, and he would just, he'll correct me subtly maybe just because he's so saturated with the Bible. So, I mean, praise God for a guy like Jerry Edgar in our midst to help all of us get our spiritual immune system up because he's saturated in this book. All right, let's look at verse 22. We're going to try to get a little further here. We've got not too much time left. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will, take her, I will strike her children dead. Just real quick, children would be her spiritual children, her spiritual disciples, those following, not her literal children, her, her disciples who are following her teaching, if they don't repent, uh, will also receive, I think this is literal physical death. I think he's actually going to, kind of like in, remember 1 Corinthians, people who abused communion who died, and in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira uh, died. I think that's what's being talked, that kind of thing is being talked about here. Middle of 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, the warning ends. Now, here's the encouraging part here at the end. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some thoughts about the encouraging section here at the end. Well, before the encouraging section, clearly this judgment. And, and of course, he, he begins with, who has eyes like flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, and those are judgment terms. And, and clearly he's going to ju judge. But uh, not everybody's involved with this. We don't, we don't know how many. I, I, this apparently was not a real large church uh, from what we know compared to some churches, but um, there are people that are not following this Jezebel and that he's going to um, place no other burden and hold fast. He's, telling, he's commissioning them to hang on, persevere. So I come, and he who overcomes, he will keep my deeds until the end. To him I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of the potter are broken pieces, as I also have received authority from the Father. This is Jesus speaking, and I will give him the morning star. In Revelation, he's the morning star. Um, what a what a beautiful um, uh, you know the, the the bad part's kind of in the middle, but this is redemption. This is for those that did not follow Jezebel. Uh, I'm gonna give you the morning star. Yeah, I mean you, we get Jesus. I think one guy just said, what does he say? Uh, the morning star is Christ Himself, which is the greatest possible thing He could promise His church. He will give us himself. We will see him face to face. We will be his and he will be ours. Our final reward is to be with our Lord. I mean, just think about, yeah, you're going to face social ostracism. You may lose your job, but you get Jesus. I mean, what motivation there to, who, who cares what people say about me? Who cares if I lose my job? I'm going to stand before Jesus sinless. I'm going to see him fullness of joy, pleasure for more and more. That is motivation to keep on. And the fact that he's preserved this, this group, I mean, that's, that's amazing too. Uh, yeah. Verse 25, is that? Referring to the second coming, you think? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I struggled with that. Um, I, I think one thing is clear. Um, I, I th my personal opinion is I think it is referring to that. There's a little bit of debate on that. 
But I mean, the good news of verse 25 is Jesus is coming. Like, Jesus is coming. Like, he will return. And that's good news. That's good news. And that's why this is, it's for these churches, but it's also for us. Like, hold fast what you have. Don't don't let go of of what Christ has given you. Cling to him. Uh, Persevere in faithfulness to him. Don't compromise. Why? Because Jesus will come. Jesus will come. Um, And that's why I think that's followed by verse 26. He says, the one who conquers. If you hold fast, you conquer. Uh, And you keep his works until the end. Um, You know, either till he returns or you die and you you go to be with him. Uh, What's what's the promise? I'm going to give you authority over the nations. You'll rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, Literally, you'll shepherd the nations with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And so whatever trampling is done to you, a day is coming, Jesus says, when you will trample those who trampled you here. And that trampling and that ruling will be a permanent one. Like what's done to us here is only temporary. But what we will participate in one day when Jesus returns, that is what lasts. And so again, we got to keep, keep in mind like the 2 Corinthians 4, you know, our, our current sufferings and and all that is really small in comparison to what God's going to give in return for uh, to us at the end. Um, so so keep that in mind. Yes, it may it may be hard and it may seem unjust and it is um, and unfair. Uh, you know, lose my job, this, that, and the other because of faithfulness to, faithfulness to Jesus. But a day is coming when that's going to be reversed. And those who those who came against you because of your faith in Jesus and those who mocked you, those who scorned you, those who kicked you out of your livelihood. A day is coming when that's going to be completely reversed and all that they were putting their hope in and putting their trust in is going to be taken away. And you who had your trust in Jesus, you will have what remains forever. So take heart and remember that, Christian. Okay, we are going to wrap up right here. Papa, can you close us in prayer? And then we'll sing and then we'll have some discussion around tables. Thank you, Mark. Um, Lord Jesus, I, I, I read from the words uh, uh, in honor of Jerry uh, from Romans uh, 8. Uh, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, the Son of God has, has spoken. Uh, the Son of God has promised uh, to deliver us, those that persevere to the end. And, and we're grateful for that. And we're grateful to be promised the, the morning star, which is Christ himself. So thank you for this um, uh, tour of Thyatira. And, and I pray that we would learn um, personally from these, uh, these words as well as uh, our church from these words because actually we should be learning from all these letters to all these churches as, as to where we, we, we fit in the, in the process. So thank you for this evening and I pray for our, our Q&A sessions and at the tables in Jesus' name.